is up, my friend, and welcome to the Dan Go Show. I'm your host, Dan Go, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at the Dan Go Show is tease out the best practices of the highest-performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. What's up and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I have my friend and he's an attachment coach. His name is Adam Lane Smith and he's a former psychologist and turned attachment coach. And he has a couple hundred thousand followers on TikTok. He's very prominent on Twitter. And, uh, and he and I get into a conversation about how attachment affects every single area of our lives. And this is one of, uh, this has actually been, it's funny when I do these interviews because it's almost like I want to talk to these people anyways and get their expertise based on an area that I am super interested in. And one of them being attachment, because I know exactly how much that affects everything that we do. And in this particular interview, I got to ask my like most uh, pressing questions when it comes to attachment. So we talk about, uh, in particular in this episode, we talk about red pill thinking and kind of like the fallacies behind uh, that and also the benefits to uh, sort of like the uh, philosophy of the red pill. And we talk about uh, attachment. We talk about the symptoms of unhealthy attachment. We talk about the uh, ways in which to create secure attachment in our lives. And we also, he goes down this rabbit hole of how we have gotten to the place that we have been in this world. And uh, it is pretty eye-opening and I'm not going to spoil it in this intro, but I will say that uh, when he was going through it, you, you cannot do anything, but just like nod your head and be like, oh, oh God, oh, oh God, you're so right. So yes, if, uh, if you're returning to this podcast, one, thank you so much. And, and two, please do me a favor, leave a review or a five-star review on uh, whatever area that you listen to podcasts. Uh, I want to get this podcast to the number one, uh, number one top, number one of self-development because I'm in it to make better human beings. And if you are new to this podcast, please do me a favor and subscribe. Uh, check out the other episodes that we do. And we put a lot of uh, work into this. I have some amazing conversations with people. I also do some solo episodes here and there. So you might uh, enjoy it. And without further ado, here is my interview with Adam Lane Smith. All right, Adam, what's up? Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, we've actually known each other for quite some time. Uh, we are part of the <laughs> we're part of the uh I like to call it, I don't, I don't know how to call Twitter. You know, it's, it's like a, it's like a little social circle all in and of itself, in and of itself. It's kind of like where we cut our teeth when it comes to creating content and, uh, and sharing our thoughts and views in the world. And, and, uh, just in general, I want to tell you that, uh, a lot of the stuff that you have come out with on Twitter has been stuff that I've jived with because, uh, I've, I'm obviously in a relationship. I'm married and I have a kid as well. So a lot of the things that you talk about hit home. So just want to welcome you to the podcast. And thanks for coming on, my friend. 
I'm excited to be here, man. Yeah, I love your stuff too. You and I jive really well when we talk about families, we talk about love and bonding and priorities. It, it seems to just go right together. I don't, I don't know what to call our circle of Twitter. Are we like healthy man Twitter or healthy dad Twitter? I, it's it's like anti-red pill, but it's it's still for healthy men. I, I don't know what the name is, but okay. yeah, it's a good place. Let's talk about that for a little bit. You know, um, I don't know if it's anti-red pill. I like to think that like there are some good elements of red pill that are out there that uh mm -hmm. that that are you know let's just say positive and obviously mm -hmm. there are some negative aspects as well uh you know one of them being so dogmatic uh with the philosophy right so yeah. what do you feel are kind of like the red pill slash purple pill uh kind of elements to it and and what's your take on on that whole idea yeah, here's here's what I think, because I teach attachment, and you know that. Um, yeah. I think that red pill circles take really good concepts like evolutionary psychology, and they say men generally evolved with this brain and this type of behavior. Women generally evolved with this brain and this type of behavior. Here is how they can interact. And that's cool. They took evolutionary psychology and they made it go mainstream. And that, that's what that's the good things Red Pill has done. And a lot of people jump in there and say, hey, cool, this makes sense. This is great. And then once you immerse yourself into some of the communities like the, the Reddit uh, and the subreddit and all, all of the pieces like that, a lot of pieces, what they turn into is people with major attachment issues coming in and saying, I can't connect to other human beings. I'm afraid to trust people. I'm afraid to trust women. And all the women that have been in my life have been really damaged and hurt me and scared me. Aha, here's evolutionary psychology. Look what it says about women. Here's what I can do to exploit anxious women and get control in my relationships. And so the red pill communities, unfortunately, often start training men to have avoidant attachment behaviors to exploit anxious women. And then it turns into this yelling match about you're doing this. No, you're doing this. And, and they're throwing pseudoscience back and forth at each other. I think that um, you and me and people like us are sort of creating an evolutionary psychology alternative to that in the mainstream. Some people call me post red pill. I'm the post red pill guy that you come to after you've go, gone out of red pill, but you want to have a healthy, loving relationship with a healthy, loving woman, uh, yourself included. And, and all of the guys that you and I really interact with, I think that's what we're doing is creating a nice alternative of, hey, you liked the science. Here's what actual love looks like <laughs> when you put yourself in it and try harder and, and solve your problems instead of just giving in to fear. I think that's what we're doing. Yeah, I, I love kind of that distinction as well. It's uh, it's like this evolution and uh, just a personal story of mine. Like I, I got into red pill philosophy and thinking right after I had been broken up with by uh, someone that I thought I was like going to get married to. And then I got mm -hmm. like so steeped into the philosophy and, I, and maybe it was like so steeped into it for maybe about two years until I started to realize that, oh my gosh, uh, this is like a philosophy that treats women as commodities and yes. not necessarily as partners in this life that sure. we're living. Um, they look at it and they look at them as objects and they see things as like very black and white. And I'm personally very glad that I got out of that because it has led to a much more fulfilling life with my wife and uh, having a child. And also it's kind of like maneuvered me into developing and knowing how to develop a healthy attachment with both of them. Now, 
you talk about attachment a lot. A lot of people that are listening to this may be like, what the heck is attachment? So, so what exactly is that? Yeah, people people have heard attachment in two other contexts. One is you're sending an attachment through email, yeah. and the other <laughs> is don't don't Buddhists tell you to not be attached? Mm. Isn't that the heart of suffering? No, attachment. Here's a third meaning of attachment. Attachment is the way that we connect to other human beings to give and receive love with them. And if you're securely attached, you believe that other people will give and receive love with you in good faith. You can't make mistakes and blow it up. You'll get a chance to fix them. You'll work collaboratively working with other people, acting with other people. And when you have broken attachment, you believe people will act upon you or that you have to act upon them by doing nice things and being the nice guy who earns approval, endless approval, or you have to act upon them by controlling them and exploiting their fears and insecurities, pushing buttons, making them happy, then pulling away. You have to act upon people or be acted upon yourself. That's really the distinction between secure attachment and insecure attachment. And, and there's anxious attachment, which is the endless approval seeking. You're acting upon other people, but you expect to be acted upon endlessly and you feel helpless and powerless. You think there's something wrong with you, that you're unlovable. And so you have to earn approval from other people. And if people have problems, you can earn endless approval from them. So you get codependent. You find people who have problems and you need to be needed just so you, you think you deserve some kind of love. And then there's avoidance style, which is red pill usually pulls in anxious guys and turns them into avoidant guys. And avoidant guys say, I'm going to act upon other people because if I don't, they're going to hurt me. So I'm going to push their buttons and be nice to them. But then when they get feelings for me, I'm going to start backing off because that's uncomfortable. I don't want people in that close. I'm not going to share my needs, but I'm going to push people's buttons to get my needs back. Nice buttons at first. And then when I have control, I may push harsher and harsher buttons if they don't do what I want. And that's that's the avoidant attachment style. And there's disorganized, which flips back and forth between the two. And it's just chaos. <laughs> All of that is the is, is really how do you give and receive love to other people? And can you work with other people or are you going to act upon them and be acted upon? Gotcha. That's really the distinction. So when you see someone who can't trust people and they're just pushing buttons, broken attachment. When you see someone who can work collaboratively with someone, they're not trying to score points. They're not trying to earn approval. They're not trying to stay in control. That's usually more secure attachment. That's gotcha. that's the, the nuts, nuts and bolts of it. And where does this attachment stem from? Uh, in the first place. So it's obviously it feels like the way that you're explaining it, it's a learned behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something that people have evolved into over the course of time. So where exactly do they get it from? Well, you think um, humans are social creatures, right? Safety in numbers is drilled into our heads from, from childhood. Safety in numbers is, is that's kind of like most mammals have safety in numbers. Even birds yeah. and fish have safety in numbers. We are safest when we have people around us who can take care of us, who can nurture us, who can meet our needs, who can, if we get hurt, they'll take care of us or sick or, or we get attacked. We feel safe when we have people around us who care about us and will help us with our needs. And we feel good when we contribute to that group. Our brain gets all this chemistry, vasopressin from solving problems together, oxytocin from warmth and care and nurturing bonding. We get serotonin from those really big, uh, from a number of things, but a lot of serotonin comes from our relationships, good conversations, feeling close and safe and happy and content. Dopamine comes in in little increments to show you what's good, but it, it's, it's not this overwhelming force where you have to binge it. And then you have GABA, which is released. Oxytocin releases GABA, especially during stress events, and diminishes your stress 
and it helps your brain calm down when they're stressed because you're, you've got oxytocin bonding. There's people who care about you and your brain remembers that and releases that anti-stress during times of stress. So all these brain chemicals are supposed to come from our healthy attachment and we've evolved from that. You figure our ancestors were hunter-gatherers just 12,000 years ago. We had the Neolithic Revolution 11,000 years ago where we figured out crops can grow. So we started building civilizations and settling down and then building in surplus and everything that we could. But our brains have not evolved in 11,000 years. Our brains don't evolve that fast. Mm. Our brains are hunter-gatherers in the tribe, taking care of each other, small family units, tight packed in there and surviving by staying a wonderful loving group together that's what we're meant for that's what that's 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 where attachment has evolved from because the ones who could do that best survived and the ones who started breaking off if they became anxious and miserable they would go right back to the group and then have a bigger chance to survive so it's an evolutionary adaptation to feel miserable when we have broken attachment that's why anxiety is goes sky high then little babies are born already with this chemistry in them. And within seconds of birth, the baby's brain starts saying, I'm out. I'm crying. I'm upset. Is mom going to comfort me? Am I going to get skin to skin contact? Is mom going to take care of me? Am I going to get breastfed when I cry? Am I going to get taken care of when I'm all yucky and I, and I pee on myself? Am I going to get my needs met? First six months of life are crucial for this. So if a baby goes into the NICU, for three or four weeks and they're locked in this little thing and you can just touch them with rubber gloves and they're crying, 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 and they're not getting skin contact. That's a lot of oxytocin and they're not getting those needs met and they're upset. That primes their brain to say, no one is going to take care of me. If the baby gets uh, abused, if the baby gets neglected, if mom is just so busy that she she's working three jobs, she puts the baby in daycare right away. And the baby mm. is now competing with strangers for the approval and attention of strangers if things like this and anything that the little brain perceives that they are being pushed out for some reason, their little brain doesn't say, oh, you know, mom is working three jobs because the economy is pretty hard. The, no, the brain says, if I was a better kid, mom would be holding me all the time. If I was a better kid, my needs would get bad. If I was a better kid, dad wouldn't have walked away from our family. And this comes continues up until age 10, age 12. Like if I was a better kid, my parents wouldn't have gotten divorced. If I was a better kid, dad wouldn't have hit me. If I was a better kid, somebody wouldn't have abused me. If I, The brain says this is me because they're trying to figure out cause and effect and their brain's programmed that way. So then the brain says, a couple of things. Number one, I don't deserve love because everyone around me sees there's something wrong with me. I have to earn people's approval and be perfect. And we get perfectionism and obsession with doing everything right and sky high anxiety. Or the brain says there is something deeply wrong with everyone around me because they're all hurting me and hurting each other. I can't trust anyone. So we lock down and our anxiety goes up because now we're in like lone wolf survival mode at five years old. And again, hunter gatherer brain, I'm in the forest. Everyone's going to abandon me. I'm alone. A five-year-old in the forest is going to die. So it welds vulnerability, both brain, both, both anxious and avoidant, welds um, avoid, vulnerability, openness, abandonment, rejection. It welds those things to death in the brain and creates this endless circuit of if I'm ever open to somebody, it could kill me. Hmm. And that creates this anxiety response when you go forward into life through the rest of your relationships. You can never trust people and work with them. You have to act upon them in certain ways. Yeah, I relate to this in a very big way um, yeah. <laughs> because when I was growing up, I was a latchkey kid or what people would call a latchkey kid, right? Yep. 
Um, mm -hmm. Parents were immigrants, so they were working all of the time. And I ended up getting raised by my second oldest brother. And as we know about kids, they're, they're little shits if they don't have like the actual adult orientation, right? Like if you put kids in front of, in, in the charge of other kids, it's like the Lord of the Flies scenario where they will take advantage of that. And it will turn into bullying. And I love my I love my second oldest brother. We have a great relationship right now. I've had to go through uh, my own uh, bouts of therapy and uh, healing around this particular area. But when I was going through this, I, I felt those things where I was like, everyone around me is a fucking robot. You yeah. know, that's what I thought, right? It's like because that was my way of protecting myself from all of the hurt that was like happening around me. So mm -hmm. I became almost like an avoidant uh, attachment personality. So, mm -hmm. so you know, I've kind of gone through my own journey and kind of consolidating this and being aware of it, first of all. <laughs> Not a lot of people are aware of it, actually. And in no. trying to actually heal that part to develop healthier attachments so I can be a better husband, so I can be a better father, yes. so I can, uh, you know, so I can be a better just human being. Now, what can some people do in order? Actually, let's go with this. What are some symptoms of having an unhealthy or maybe net negative attachment style? And then what are some things that we can do in order to heal this part of ourselves in order to get back to healthier attachments? Absolutely. Absolutely. So talking first about what are some symptoms of unhealthy attachment? It is never being able to share your needs clearly with another person. Either you think your needs are going to be a burden and they're going to say, you're not worth that and reject you, or they're going to resent you for sharing your needs, or they're just not going to want to work with you and they don't care what your needs are. Or it's thinking that they're going to use your vulnerabilities and your feelings against you somehow to hurt you. So if you open up, it's danger zone. That's a big piece of it. It is when somebody does something, you start immediately thinking about how can I fix this? What button do I need to push to make them happy again? Because they're angry. I just need to figure out how to push the right button. It's not talking with them and being comfortable sitting with them in the middle of the conflict and saying, hey, you know what? Let's, I'm, I'm sorry for this. Let's work together to resolve this. It's what button do I need to push? Mm. It's being awake half the night or sitting in the shower obsessing over the right thing you need to say to figure out how to navigate that conversation. It is social anxiety. A lot of people think, oh, I have social anxiety because I'm an introvert. Introvert and extrovert is really how you recharge. It's not necessarily the absolute terror. The fear of going out and connecting with people in social events usually comes from feeling stressed out in your life. And then you have to go to a social event where you have to endlessly push buttons. Social events become video games. Like you said, everybody else is a robot. Mm -hmm. I have to play an endless video game and get it perfect. Perfectionism, self-sabotage, fear of being exposed as, as a fraud, belief that you cannot be loved or belief that nobody else will ever love you because there's something wrong with them. Either it's wrong with you, anxious style, or it's wrong with them, avoidance style. And it, it's just this endless cycle where you are alone. You have very low oxytocin bonding, especially in your life. It feels weird or scary to connect to other people. You have a hard time relaxing. Maybe you're irritable quite frequently. Your stress is always high. And you're always at six or seven out of 10 anxiety level every day. That's your average operating level. And you think this is normal. This is like you said, you, you hit the nail. No, most people have no idea what attachment is. 
and no idea that this isn't normal. So when we try to talk to them, we say, hey, man, you should be talking to people, connecting with people. Just solve your problems with them. Just love them. Just be open. Get your needs met. And they're like, are you an idiot? Nobody can ever do that. That only happens on movies. That's not real life. Because they, I've, I've charted this out. It's broken over the last hundred years here in America and in the West. The systems that were supposed to be there to correct and correct and correct. We had all these redundant systems built in from human history to try to correct these attachment issues. They've all been dismantled. Mm. Modern generations have never seen a functioning, a healthy family or society. So they, they can't even imagine it. That's something that only happens on movies. And that right there is the biggest lesson. If, if you can figure out that it's even possible to heal this, that there's even another way to live, that's half the work done already. So going into, you'd ask me, what do you do about this? Mm. Well, I, I mean, that's my profession. I, I coach this. I retired from, I was, I was a therapist. And in graduate school, I got my master's degree in psychology. They told us. We're teaching to the Diagnostic Statistics Manual. We only teach to the to the, the diagnoses. The only diagnoses for attachment are in kids. So don't ever worry about attachment unless you are working with little tiny five-year-olds. If you worry about attachment uh, past five-year-olds, you're doing it wrong. Attachment doesn't matter. If a child really has an attachment problem, they will always become a defiant child who is stealing and violent. And then they will always develop a personality disorder. That That is more or less what is taught in American psychology schools. Why do you attachment think that is? Doesn't matter. Why do you, why do you because think that it's, is? Because attachment is – it is, number one, hard to medicate. Mm. I, hate, I hate to take that approach. Yeah. It's hard to medicate. And it is the scariest thing on earth to try to fix. And it is so much easier to look at it and say, well, there must be something just wrong with people's brain chemistry. You know, men and men and women aren't just built for this modern society. There's just something off. Here's these other symptoms and outgrowths of it. It's a lot like all the medical problems. The top seven of the seven of the 10 top causes of death in the United States are actually linked to metabolic problems. But we don't treat metabolic problems. We treat the diseases and the diagnoses of them. We don't look at the underlying piece. The same thing is happening here. We treat all these diagnoses that stem out, I believe, from attachment problems, but without looking at the deeper cause underneath. We just say, eh, attachment, that's kid stuff. We're a grown-up adult. We can handle it. You just need to manage the symptoms. The symptoms are the problem. And and that's just not true. Or so fixing it, I <laughs> – yeah, yeah, exact yeah. man up. Um, tell that to a five year old. Exactly. You don't have attachment <laughs> problems. You're past the diagnostic age. You're like eight. But yeah. Um, so I had to retire my license as a therapist so that I could, instead of just doing therapy in one state, I could coach internationally. So I coached executives and CEOs and celebrity families now everywhere in the world. And when I teach them how to fix attachment, it begins with managing the anxiety because you've got two different sides of your brain. You've got the logical side right here, which is long-term decision-making. And hey, this doesn't make sense. I'm probably, it's not this bad. And then your emotional side of the next five seconds, maximize pleasure, minimize pain, control my terror, solve problems, stay alive, next five seconds. And, and remember, abandonment and vulnerability and connecting to other humans is equal to death. So when you have an experience where you're going to try to open up, 
your logical brain diminishes to dump all the energy on your emotional brain and go sky high. So this, like another version of you takes over, the fear version takes over and says, I can never open up to someone. I'm not going to share my needs. No, I'm not going to let this happen. And it goes sky high and you start acting irrationally upon other people in ways that you don't really like. And this leads to a lot of self-hatred for people because you violate your principles, you do things that are not right, and you hate them and you tear your relationships apart. But that's what causes it. So the step zero that I work with people is manage their anxiety down to a point where when they start thinking about connecting with people, their logical brain is engaged, their emotions are diminished in that way their fear is, and they can start having those conversations with other people. And then you talk to them and you say, look, I'm an anxious person. I'm stressed out about relationships. I've never been able to connect with people. I'm afraid that if I do, I'm going to get hurt or abandoned, but I don't want to do this anymore. And I want to build a loving relationship with you. Can we do this? It's, I call it the I'm an anxious person speech. And you, it's like eight seconds long. It's the worst, most terrifying conversation you'll ever have in your life because your brain is screaming at you the whole time that you are going to die. And meanwhile, the other person is looking at you and caring and, oh, that's, I'm sorry to hear that. And yeah, I knew that about you, that you're anxious, but I didn't realize it was that bad. And your brain says, what just happened? They haven't thrown a rock at me. They didn't jump out the window. They haven't set me on fire. They actually care. What is this? And the brain freaks out. And when you do this conversation with two to three people, your brain, our hunter-gatherer brain says, oh, I don't live in the rocks outside, the, outside of our, our clan. I'm not an exile. I'm actually living in the in the clan with my family and my tribe. We're actually together. People actually will listen to me. This is a what is this? And then the brain says, "Don't do this anymore. Don't test it because this was a fluke." And then you start leaning into it and working with other people. You start surrendering control of situations and saying, "How can we work on this together? What can we do? What how can we build this as a team?" How can we, with your wife, for example, how can we build a good family together? What can we do to improve our bedroom life? How can we fix these problems between us? Us as a team, giving up control so you're not pushing her buttons. You're working with her as a human being and providing informed context, informed consent so that she can work with you. As you do that with two to three people, that's all you really need. Your brain remaps your neural pathways from I have to have total control by acting upon everything, but I know I don't have control, so I'm always afraid, to I'm actually loved and accepted, and I can trust the people around me. Stress levels plummet. Oxytocin goes up. GABA goes up. Vasopressin goes up. Serotonin goes up. And then you stop chasing endless dopamine binges because dopamine was all you had. Mm -hmm. So then your addictive behavior start plummeting and all of that really starts helping. And that's, that's how you fix attachment. You just do that. Mm -hmm. And then you teach it to your kids and they grow up with better attachment and the whole world gets better. That's the system, man. Now you said that you went kind of like passed over this a little bit, which was like uh, the managing anxiety part. What is like the process behind doing that before getting into uh, say, like the attachment speech that you talked about? Well, yeah. So managing the anxiety really is about um, taking control, not of the logical brain, because you can't, that's diminished, and and the emotional brain, that do, do, do back and forth. There's a third process, which is pro intense, prolonged physical discomfort. And I, one thing I love about your message is teaching fitness, yeah. teaching like control of your body, teaching pride in that. And And when you push yourself into the endurance phase, you know what I mean, when you're doing exercise, you push yourself into that endurance phase, 
and you reach that point where you don't want to go anymore, your body doesn't, but you as a human, a cognitive human being are focusing in and you make it happen. There, there's left side logical brain starts activating right here. The, the focus, focusing portion is over here and you start focusing and your brain says something is happening with my body. I, I'm fighting a bear, hunter gatherers again, I'm fighting a bear. There's another clan that's attacking us. Uh, tiger's trying to eat me. I'm falling off a cliff and I have to climb back up or I'm going to die. I don't have time to think about my feelings and how sad I am that my girlfriend broke up, whatever it is. So it drains the emotional brain. Once you hit that endurance phase, it starts draining the emotional brain. And the more you lean into that endurance phase, you go down to zero anxiety, totally calm, which totally fills your logical brain. And you have total control of your emotions at that point, completely purely logical. And your brain processes those fears and thoughts that you've been circling on, circling, circling, processes them logically on the logical brain and says, wait a minute, why was I afraid of this? Why was I stressed out about this? This doesn't make sense. Okay, I'm just going to fix this. And you just fix it because this is the 20-year thinking over here, not the five-second. This is your principles, your goals, and you process it over here logically. So as you learn to do that at will daily, I have techniques I teach people and, and exercise and fitness and cardio and stuff like that will do it. Um, getting to the endurance phase, pushing into it and draining not to three and then popping up, but zero and staying there for a while releases chemicals of its own, but mm. that right there gets you into the habit of controlling that emotional agitation at will. So you can control it every single day. You're still artificially suppressing it through activity. You haven't solved the problem. The attachment will suppress it calmly and return your brain to that state. So it doesn't keep spiking every day and you don't have to keep doing that. But that is number one, because then you can go out and have that conversation of I'm an anxious person. Then you can go out and choose to work with other people because this brain agitated this high won't let you choose that. That's why you got to control the anxiety first. Mm. Uh, I feel very, very much like I, I relate to this because it's like I use my body as a way to control my mind. That was the very first thing that I did exactly. to kind of start off on my journey to just improve myself as a human being. And a lot of times it's like when we feel this anxiety, when we feel like our thoughts are getting out of control, what do most people do? They kind of like double down on, I got to stop thinking. I just got to stop like, you know, doing this. But what they got to do is they got to get out of their mind and into their body first. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. What are, what are some of your physical practices? Uh, I know that you, you're getting yourself, uh, that you're, you've gotten yourself in shape. You've dropped like a, a lot of weight in a very, uh, yeah. In a, in a, period of time. I don't know how long you're at it for, or, you know, what, what exactly are your physical practices for both mind and body? Yeah. So I've actually, it's been weird. I've never been a runner. I've hated running my whole yeah, life. And same. all of a sudden I've really developed a taste for it <laughs> and it's fun that it is when you yeah. hit that, like, man, I can't go anymore. And then you say, yes, I can. Mm. That's the endurance phase. And then you push into it. And, you, and when you know, that's what you're doing, you're like, I'm not just fixing my body right now. I'm also fixing my brain. This yes. I'm going to be so and, I, and as I'm running, like, <laughs> I'm thinking I'm going to be so calm today. It's going to be great. And I'm thinking that as I'm running. Um, and that helps. What I do when I, I've got buddies that call me and they're, uh, they're freaking out, panicking. Like, my girlfriend just broke up with me. Or I, this happened. I just lost my job. I'm just so miserable. I say, dude, all right. Where are you right now? I'm in my room. All right, jumping jacks. And then they start doing jumping jacks. Oh, I hate this. Keep doing it. <laughs> and they do it until they're like, and I say, all right, drop and do push-ups now. And they do push-ups so that I can't do anymore. They get up and do, do, do jumping jacks. 
And they do this for like 15 minutes and they're like, I can hear them crying and panting into the phone, but their crying gets less and less as the panting gets worse. And then I say, Hey dude, where are you at right now? Like one out of 10 anxiety, two out of 10 anxiety. Where are you at? And they start out like nine out of 10 and then they go down to eight out of 10 and they go down to five out of 10 and they go down to like four out of 10. Should I stop? And I say, no, if you stop now, you're just going to spike right up because your brain is still agitated. Go all the way. Let's go all the way to zero. Okay, man. And they keep going. And it takes 15, 20 minutes, and then they're at one out of 10 or zero out of 10 anxiety, and they say, Adam, I feel like an idiot. Why did I even call you? I, I, I'm, this was even worth getting upset over. Why was I crying? This is weird. I feel so great. I think I'm just going to go order a pizza and hang out with my friends. Okay, you do that. Go ahead, by all means. 20 minutes later, from my life is over to, hey, I think I'm just going to hang out with my buddies and watch a movie. This will be great. 20 minutes with your body. And that'll do it. Um, I teach uh, progressive muscle relaxation technique of tightening and relaxing different muscle groups with intense breathing that does it. But it is anything that is. In- what's that, oh. though? Like, what's in, what's the breathing practice or the intense? Yeah. What, what was it that you called it? It's called progressive muscle relaxation. But that's a little deceptive because it's a special script I've invented that. Um, it, it, progressive muscle relaxation is you lay there and they read different like now your arms are going to relax and they and they go limp now your chest will relax and you just imagine your muscles relaxing and then they do um i have specifically you tighten the muscles as hard as you can and you hold it and you do deep as deep in and out breathing as you can and then you let the muscles go and you hold them and, and relax them and feel the relaxation. And then you clench them up again and, you're, and you continue the deep breathing as you go. And you, you squeeze and you breathe and then you let go and you feel the relaxation. And as you're squeezing and relaxing in different, different sequences and breathing, your brain is calming down and saying, what is happening? Am I fighting for my life right now? I better check. Let's diminish the emotions. So if I ever get stressed, I go in my bedroom. I've nailed this down to I, I usually start people off with 15 minutes, a 15-minute thing that they do. I've got mine done in like two minutes. I go in my bedroom. I do this for two minutes and my stress goes from five out of 10 to zero out of 10. And then I can come back out and deal with whatever it is. And I teach that so people can go, you know, oh, I'm at work. Okay. I'm going to go to the bathroom really quick, lock myself in a bathroom stall and do this for two minutes and then come out totally calm and refreshed and deal with whatever was stressing me out or at a family event. You, when you learn how to do this that effectively, and then you do it over and over and over and over, your brain doesn't fight it anymore. Your brain doesn't say, no, I need to hold on to the stress. It says, oh, I'm in that physical activity again. And this actually calms me down. I'm going to do it. And it leans into it and it becomes really helpful it becomes a really powerful association so the more you do this the easier it becomes and that mm. that manages the anxiety and then you can have the conversations you need to have but you're 100 percent right man it's all about control the mind through the body mm. that's what it is and how exactly did you get into this in the first place because i know uh, from what you just mentioned is that you went through the traditional psychology route you didn't like what was happening there and then what kind of drew you or, or, or pushed you towards, uh, attachment therapy? Good question. So I, uh, my specialty in psychology before I got into attachment was severe traumas and PTSD, very severe. And I wanted to know why do some people have PTSD symptoms without any traumatic events that have happened in their life, but they live as though they have PTSD. Why do some people have that? And other people are like, eh, they're totally resilient. And then nothing bothers them. Even trauma. Hmm. They're like, eh, that wasn't the biggest thing in my life. What it, what was it that made that happen? And everybody, I'd read articles about resilience and they would say, we don't know, but it's just some people are resilient. <laughs> and so I started digging deeper and I, I myself grew up with an anxious attachment style. 
um, through my extended family. They have problems for generations. Um, and I, I read uh, some books on attachment, and I said, this actually starts making sense. Like, so start connecting those attachment pieces to some of the diagnoses that I've been working with. So PTSD, when you have this attachment issue and you believe no one on earth will ever help you, and then you have a traumatic event, your brain tries to answer two questions for PTSD. What are all the factors that went into this that made this happen? And how do I make sure this never happens again? And when you have that broken attachment and you think you're alone in the world, no one's going to help you, your brain says, I'm so agitated, I can't even think of what the factors are. So now everything is scary. And number two, I can never make sure this doesn't happen again because I'm alone and helpless. So it's going to happen again. All I can do is keep worrying. And the same would happen with generalized anxiety disorder. And then I saw the links to attachment and depression and, and, and how that worked out and attachment and panic attacks and attachment and borderline personality disorder, attachment and, and uh, bipolar disorder and attachment and all these other all these disorders we were treating and diagnostic pieces that we were treating, all these diagnoses. And I said, I think there's something here. So I wrote a book on it and then I wrote a second book on it. And then I started talking to the people in, in some of my clinics and they said, this is great. You have to lead us and teach us. So I, I started teaching seminars to other healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, medication providers, other therapists, clinic directors. I started training and training all these people in attachment. And they were like, this is amazing. Can I get your book? And then other therapists around the United States started buying my book and learning about how to fix attachment and, and, and build that system in. And then clinicians up in, uh, in Canada started doing it, so it was international. And then I had people contacting me for podcasts. And then I had big families and celebrity families internationally saying, Adam, can you please just help us? And I said, I can't. My, my licensing board has told me I cannot do coaching. And I can't do therapy outside of my state. And they said, we really need you. And I just, I had dozens and dozens and dozens of families just contacting me. So I said, all right, I'll terminate my license. I guess I cannot be a therapist anymore and treat attachment. If that's what the medical system in America wants, that's what the medical system is going to get. So that, mm. that has been my pathway to becoming an attachment specialist. I'm one of the few people on earth doing this and it's, it's got to be done. I feel uh, we can go so deep into the pharmacology model of psychology, and I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily want to take it there because uh, then we'll, then we'll get into some like uh, conspiracies totally, and things that you know. Um, totally hear you. Yeah. Now, okay, a couple of things come to mind is that uh, you know when we're talking about PTSD, when we're talking about uh, depression, anxiety, now. For some people that are listening to this who are dealing with, uh, you know, maybe those issues or, you know, some level of those issues, you know, they may kind of look at this as like, okay, so we're using attachment as kind of like this blanket, uh, as this blanket purpose for uh, for all the ills that we have in society. And uh, isn't there like other factors that are involved, uh, say like the lack of activity, sedentary, being sedentary, the food that goes into our body or or would you actually say a lot of this stuff actually comes from unhealthy attachment? Dan, there are, um, do you have a minute for me to go down a rabbit hole? Yeah, dude, any <laughs> rabbit hole is, you want to go into. This, heck, heck this yes. one, this one, when I tell people this, um, they, they crap their pants when I, when I draw this out for them. But you think here in the United States, about a hundred years ago, most people wouldn't travel more than about 15, 20 miles from their home. 100 years ago in the United States, it was end of World War I. Let's even go a little before World War I. Uh, most, most families lived on farms, not in cities. They lived on farms. And if you didn't travel more than 15, 20 miles from where you were born during the course of your life, you would have 
hundreds of family members around you. It, your your whole town was half of them were related to you. Mm. Um, and you would have mom and dad. You'd have 10 brothers and sisters. You'd have 50 or 60 cousins. You'd have 20 aunts and uncles. You'd have grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. And you'd have this giant family system. And you would grow up known by all these people. So you couldn't believe you were a fraud because everyone knew everything about you. You had very little secrets. There was good and bad to it. But the good is that you didn't grow up thinking you were alone. You didn't grow up thinking you were a fraud. And if something went wrong with you and your parents, your, your dad suddenly spiraled off, became an alcoholic, was abusive. Um, you had all these other people to step in and fix it. All the other family members could step in and fix it and help you reassure you that you are not alone. So your attachment could could get fixed. You could, you'd run around, your brain chemistry would be good, so then you'd want to run around and play, you'd feel safe, you'd have all these cousins, you'd grow up in these family systems running and playing anyway, so sedentary lifestyle wasn't as common for, for a number of reasons. Um, and everything came back to whatever the problem is, you got to fix it and work it out together as a family. That, that's what the message was. And then we had World War One, where it was a meat grinder. And we lost like half, a, a generation of young men. And they came back, we call them the lost generation. This is Steinbeck of mice and men, depressing, like Hemingway. Um, everything was miserable and depressing, like a whole generation of young men just broken. And then you had the silent generation who went through the, well, they had the roaring twenties after mm -hmm. that. First of all, people, people largely were starting moving into cities. Credit blew up, you could get money and then industrialization blew up and then you could start getting good jobs. And then you had the dust bowl and the great depression and you had all these crashes and destruction and family farms just obliterated. And you finally, for the first time, have most Americans, more Americans living in cities than on farms. And they just shoved into the cities and in awful conditions. And mom and dad had to work, like dad had to work 18 hour days. Mom was trying to manage all these kids by herself. Families broke up. Families were lost. It was like, it was like ancient times. Someone has conquered your people. You are dragged over to their nation and shoved into slave quarters and now forced to survive there together without your extended family system. Because we weren't supposed to go more than 15, 20 miles from where we were born. And now we had to lose everything and go and no shoes on our feet, go live in a city and work in factories. Little kids working in factories at five years old, crawling down in coal mines with dynamite into the tiny holes because they're the only ones who could. Stuff like that. Uh, that's the silent generation. And they were in living hell. They were in living hell. And then you have the greatest generation who also went through that and went into World War II and fought and died overseas. Another generation obliterated. And what these generations learned was we had this catastrophe as a society, America and Europe, um, and parts of Asia too through that. And what we learned was we have to just barely survive. We, our, our species barely survived this. Families are broken. We can't connect to each other. We have to scrape to survive. And then the, the silent generation and the greatest generation had the baby boomers. And about half of the baby boomers understood that their silent, disconnected, work-to-death parents loved them and that that was how you showed love was by being silent and working to death and, and being disconnected. And they didn't learn the good things, but they at least kind of learned what love was. And the other half of the baby boomers said, screw these people. All they do is yell at me. They don't love me. They don't even understand me. Get out of my face, man. I'm going to. And they, they started to love sex and rock and roll and drugs. Cars became available so they could drive as far from their home as they wanted to. They could get out. They could date. They could start casual sex. They could do all kinds of stuff. 
They got married, the baby boomers did, and they destroyed marriage. They destroyed families. They had the generation X and Y who grew up and are still to this day like deers in the headlights. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to live? And they don't know anything. They're, they're just broken. Um, and the baby boomers right now in their 70s and 80s are still tripling the divorce rates in their 70s and 80s from historic levels. And their message was, sometimes love just doesn't work. Hey, sometimes you just get tired of the other person. Hey, sometimes you just don't feel like being in a family anymore. Hey, sometimes, I don't know. Sometimes it just breaks up, man. Don't worry about it. Love isn't real. You focus on you. Your life is about you and having fun. And then they, they baby boomers, went in their second marriages and had the millennials and said, well, our first batch of kids was a failure because they just sit there looking at us like with a shell shock. We're going to make this new generation just like us. Then they're going to be tough and resilient and all focused on them. And the millennials are tough and resilient and focused just on them. And they hate the boomers and the boomers hate them. And they're screaming at each other because they're trying. They tried to make clones and they came out angrier than the boomers did. And then that generation has never seen a functional family. They don't remember the family farms. They don't remember the family units. They're supposed to be enclosed and protecting you. They don't remember that. All they know is stress and pain and misery. So then they have these jobs. They try to diminish stress in as many ways as possible. So sedentary lifestyle instead of running and putting stress on your body. Easy jobs and, and just letting someone else do the thinking for you instead of opening businesses and doing what you're what, and, and stretching and, and trying new things. It's just somebody please take care of me. And junk food, because that's dopamine binging too. Everything is built on dopamine binging. Mm. And then corporations came along and said, hey, there's this giant need for consumerism and junk food and all this stuff. Let's make money. And, and I don't think it was like, hey, hey we're going to destroy people. It was probably like, hey, there's this giant need. Let's meet it and let's start making money. And then government came in. Hey, people want to be taken care of and they don't have family systems and everyone's killing themselves. And what's this is weird. Let's take control. And people said, yes, please take control of us. <laughs> and and it has led to this overall system of endless consumerism, dopamine binging, treating symptoms, trying to take care of people as they're declining from all these problems. And I believe it all goes back to we are not living the way we need to be living that gives and fosters healthy attachment. And we don't have redundant systems built anymore. So it is everything. It's everything. But it started when we shattered attachment and broke all the systems that would have protected attachment. So to get back there, fix the attachment. And all the other things we've done since then will be less attractive and we will be more interested in a healthy life. Like yourself, you started chasing these healthier things, building in your body, controlling your mind through your body. And then you start thinking, man, there's got to be better ways to have relationships. This isn't logical. So you start building your relationships in. And then you said, man, this is good stuff, but I'd like to have a family. So you started having healthier family and building that. And now look at you, man. You are focused on fatherhood, training other fathers training people to live better lives. You are out there teaching it. And you're like, why would I want to be stuck at a desk, sucking down a Mountain Dew every hour on the hour, eating nothing but donuts and miserable? You don't want that anymore because you have built a great life. You fixed your attachment and you're managing it. And that's the human cycle. That's that's the rabbit hole I wanted to chase. And most people have never seen it all put together like that. I, I'd like to think that I'm still like fixing it right now. Sure. Yeah, we all yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, when you were talking about the family unit, especially the way that we lived, uh, I would see, I would even like call it like a thousand, maybe a couple thousand years ago. Um, there is this idea that we all lived in this, uh, in kind of like, a, I guess you could call it like a tribe where sure. we knew every single person we were interacting with where we would go down and we would get bread from, you know, the guy who knows our name, who knows our parents. 
uh, we would actually be surrounded by uncles. Actually, this reminds me a lot of um, one culture in particular. It's like Mexican culture where they all mm. live in the same in the same block together. The grandfather, yeah. the uncles, the brothers, the sisters. Uh, and it, it kind of like reminds me of this thing that I was talking about with uh, with one of my friends. His name is Chris Lopez. Um, it's called the Alpha Dad, although... You know, I told him, I was like, he's got to change his branding because like, dude, don't, <laughs> you know, but, but he calls himself, he, he homeschools his kids. He's done it for like 18 years. He has like five of them. And mm-hmm. we talked about the idea of adult and peer orientation. And we've kind of like moved from this idea of like being, or not adult, but actually parental. We moved from this, mm-hmm. uh, this idea of being attached to our parents because they were the ones who provided love. And then now we seek this orient or we're oriented towards our peers who really don't give a fuck about us, who, who really could, who could, who give, who could give like less fucks, which actually creates less confidence in other people. It creates less confidence in you, makes you feel unloved. could also create the, again, like we said, the Lord of the Flies scenario. And, and how exactly, you know, if someone hasn't necessarily had that adult orientation or the or the parental orientation their entire lives. This is a broader question. Like, what exactly can we do as like a society to get us more towards get us more back there? Because right now, I have to work to provide for my family and to provide the life yeah. I uh, for my family. My wife is uh, spending the most time with uh, my daughter, and that's cool. Sometimes I leave, and my daughter's like. She doesn't understand where daddy's going at all. She yeah. just knows that daddy's gone for like eight hours of the day. So yeah. what can we do to start moving back towards that uh, that parental att- or that parental orientation, the feeling of being loved? Um, what can we do to get there? That's a great question. It really comes down to connecting to two or three other healthy people at first. So that you get any kind of bonding. And I tell people, don't go to your parents, usually, (laughs) because they're the (laughs) ones who gave you, often they're the ones who gave you the attachment issue in the first place. Go, if you have siblings, go to them. If you have one or two friends you could talk to who seem reasonable and aren't controlling or toxic, talk to them. Have the I'm an anxious person speech with them. If you have a partner of some kind, connect with them. Two or three people will make a huge difference. And then your brain will become addicted to the healthy bonding love, because this is what we are made for. This is our survival is focused on having that. That's why it's such a problem. But when you fix it, your brain becomes in a good way addicted to the love and bonding and connection that you're going to get with those other people. And when you fix that, you start seeking it out because the research interestingly shows that about 50% of American adults have secure attachment. Mm. There's half the people walking around have actually pretty decent attachment. They had decent parents. Things went right. They managed to fix it, and they're pretty good. They're just very quiet, and they're often little communities, and they're not all over the internet posting about, oh, look at me. Yeah. They're, they're just very quiet. Most of them don't even have a Twitter account. They're yeah. just very calm, very can, quiet. They're pretty can, chill. Can we go there a little bit? So what exactly does secure attachment look like for maybe the good 50% question. of people that are, that are watching yeah. this that have it? Yeah. Secure, secure attachment is, let's say, um, let's say you and I are roommates, and- we have a problem. Something happens. You know, I, I leave dishes in the sink all the time. And I'm just, well, mom didn't train me how to kind of clean up my dishes. And we're, we're college roommates. A secure attachment would you become, you'd come to me and say, hey, man, 
you know what? You probably don't know this and you'd probably put your hand on my shoulder, physical contact. More secure people are able to have physical contact without fear. Um, they probably put your hand on my shoulder. Hey man, you probably don't know this. So I'm not mad at you, but we got to do our dishes together. We have to take care of each other. We have to take care of our space. Let's not leave our dishes for everyone. Cause if you do that, it feels like you're just pushing them all off on me. So can we do this where we, we build a system together? What's it going to take for both of us to make sure these dishes get taken care of? That's what a secure attached person would say. An insecurely attached person would come in and either be avoidant and say, man, I'm sick of this. You're doing this all the time. You don't even care about me. You're doing this on purpose. You don't give a crap. And, and they automatically assume malice. And then they start pushing your buttons to scare you into line to doing what they want you to do. Or an anxious person that's avoidant, an anxious person would come in and say, and they do passive aggressive things. They do nice things for you, hoping you will somehow figure out that what you are doing is wrong and that you want them to get that need met. They would figure out ways to push the buttons. And when they've done 10 nice things for you and you haven't responded, then they get irritable and they snap at you. And then they do what the avoidant person would do. And they unload on you after six months and say, I can't live with you anymore. This is a nightmare. You're, and they would go around behind your back telling everybody else the bad things you'd been doing. And you are a monster who never realized that you need to clean your own dishes. That's often the passive aggressive behaviors and the avoidant behaviors and the working around and the controlling, scaring. That's insecure. Secure people are the ones you want to be around who just come to you and say, hey, you probably didn't know this. It's okay. Let's take care of these dishes. We got to do this. If we have to have the conversation again, we will. And that'll be a little different. But right now, let's just take care of this together. Please, let's get on a schedule. And I will work with you. I, I know you're not doing this because you're a jerk. And I'm going to work with you to make this happen. It's it's like a healthy boss at work coming to you and saying, hey, you know, your performance metrics were down. I'm not going to scream at you. I'm not going to control you. you. Something's just not going right. And I'm your boss. I'm here to help you. How can we together as a team do this? Let's build a plan to make this work together. A bad boss, an insecure boss would be screaming at you. You're making me look bad. You're doing this on purpose. You're lazy. And parenting, same thing. So I've got a six-year-old son. And he, he is a sneaky ninja when he tries to sneak out of like We've put bells on his door. He disables <laughs> the bells. We put alarms on his door. He disables the alarms. He has figured out how to be deathly silent from age like two and a half. And it's, it's been wild. Um, he loves to try to sneak out while we, my, my wife and I will watch a movie at night. I love action films, 80s action films. He'll try to sneak out. I don't want him watching these 80s action films where they're shooting people's heads off. So he comes sneaking out and I will, instead of an insecure parent controlling him, acting upon him, screaming at him, you get back in that room. If you come back out, I'm going to do this. Why are you always doing this? You're such a rotten little kid. Why won't you listen to me? I'm your dad. You have to... <laughs> I take him back to his bedroom and I say, okay, buddy, you know, you can sneak out again. You can, and you might get another 10 minutes of playing out of this and, and, and playing these games with me. And it is going to frustrate me and, and I'll get frustrated and you'll get frustrated and it's going to be bad. But then I will never want to let you stay up again because you're proving to me that I can't trust you. If you, you, you can sneak out again and get another 10 minutes out of this, but you'll be trading like 10 nights of us staying up together and having this fun together which would you rather have? Which is better for you? And he doesn't even answer me. He just rolls over and goes right to sleep because <laughs> he makes that decision. I'm persuading him by what is good for both of us, showing him the consequences. I will get frustrated. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to lose these privileges because I just won't trust you anymore. It'll hurt our relationship. I tell him that. It, this will hurt our relationship. Don't keep doing this. And then he makes the choice himself. That's acting with your children. That is secure attachment. In all three examples, that's secure attachment. And then that's insecure attachment. I hope that helps. I hope that's that's clear for people listening. 
That was fantastic. I, I love that distinction. And what exactly does, uh, you alluded to it a little bit in the last story. And uh, what does the kind of housing situation look or, you know, kind of like how you parent your children look in the Smith household? Uh, you know, like uh, you, you have four kids right now. Um, is the six-year-old the oldest? Yes, so we've got okay. four kids under six, man. We're loaded. It's, it's a whole swarm of kids that just you just had one too, on right? Yeah, I did. Just back okay. in, he's he's uh, he's six months old now. So six yeah, it's, months. It's a lot. It's a lot. Wow. <laughs> and good. then, uh, it, okay. So I know that you're obviously going to work. Uh, mm-hmm. We were talking about this a little bit earlier before the podcast uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like having to create constraints when it comes to your work mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Now, is your wife working as well? Is she at home mm-hmm. taking care of the kids? I, 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 just like you said, I, I work and uh, she takes care of the kids 100% of the time. Their needs get met yeah. and I work from home. I run my business from home. So I mm-hmm. step out every every hour or every two hours. I go give them hugs. I, I give them affection because it's not – attachment isn't just not doing the bad things. It's doing the good things. You have to learn the good things to do. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of families who have anxious systems – and they're not bad parents, but they don't know how to teach the good things. They raise anxious kids. So attachment problems is you don't know how to do the good. So I do that. And then we've got um, the house right next door to us is my wife's, some of my wife's family, her brother, her mother. So we're a family, an extended family system. Like you had talked about Mexican-Americans doing. That's what we're doing. It's a smart thing that they do. They stay in a cohesive group. And then we've got an uncle who lives right up the road. We've got another uncle and an aunt who lives up right the road. We've got these connections and we're, we're kind of eyeing the other houses of the neighborhood. Like, all right, when are you going to sell? All right, you guys, are, you guys are getting older. Can we buy your house? And we'll just, we'll just be like, hey, when you're done, can we buy your house and move our family into it? And we are. We're just building like a family like mafia out here of <laughs> a village of our own. Nice. And it's great. And then we connect to other families who are doing similar things. And, and a lot of families are doing this is, all right, let's actually move back together. That's, that's one, one, one. I hesitate to say it this way. Um, that has been one silver lining of the last two and a half years with the mm-hmm. pandemic, with everything and, and the financial crashes. It is forcing people back together. In some cases, that's bad because the families are unwilling to work on it. But in the families that are willing to work on it and they are forced to have those conversations and repair attachment and work together, they are working together as teams. And some families are starting to thrive from the last two and a half years because they're repairing the family systems. And people Mm. are like, I don't need to work. I can work half as many hours. I can work out and we can pool our money. We can work together. Why don't we just do this? Let's just add on to the house. Let's just buy the house next door. Let's just be together. And I think that's part of the reason that um, the workforce is crashing so hard right now is everywhere you go, retail places and food places, restaurants are saying, hey, we are short staffed right now because nobody wants to come to work. I think that's what a lot of it is, is families just don't need to as much. Yeah. And there's there's other reasons. There's other, I'm sure the financial people are going to hit me for that. But <laughs> there, there are so many good things that people are going backwards to where they were 100 years ago in a good way fixing healthy family systems i'm not talking about toxic ones and being abused i'm talking about going back and fixing family systems the the old is becoming new and it's becoming this great idea of hey 
Why don't we all just live together again? Oh, that's a great idea. Why didn't anybody think of that? Man, our ancestors were stupid. Why didn't they do that? That would have been great. <laughs> Dumbasses. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's been uh, a grand experiment and it hasn't worked. And let's all get back together and be healthy together. And if you can't yeah. with your family, then do it with your friends. Do it, build, build a new village. Mm. I've, I know some people who are connecting with buddies and, and married couples are connecting. And there's like 10 married couples and they buy houses around each other in one network and they build their own little mini village and they raise their kids together and they homeschool back and forth and they mm. work together. They run businesses together. The old is becoming the new, my friend. What would you say to someone, uh, to a family where both parents have to work? Um, obviously we're living in a time of society. And one thing I want to add in there is that, uh, the internet has, I mean, a lot of people like saying like the internet has brought so many like these bad things you know to society but at the same time it's allowed us to work from home and to be able to be at home with our kids which is such yeah. a blessing um it is so what would you say to someone who has both parents uh needing to work their nine to fives uh needing to put their kids into schools or daycares or whatnot what kind of tips yeah. would you give to them to develop healthy attachments in their homes that is a great question because I, I do – I've worked with so many single moms. And when I say all this about attachment, they say, so are my kids just screwed? Mm. And and I don't want to say yes because, no, they're not. It, it There are risks. There are major risks. And the best thing you can do is manage them with open, clear communication. You explain attachment to your kids in whatever way they can understand. You give them the context and you, you over-explain the context. Look, sweetheart, just so you know. I love you so much, but daddy has to work to take care of our family. And I am going to work so hard that hopefully you don't have to work as hard as I do. And we will be a great family, but it is, it's not guilt. It's, I, I love you so much. I want to do this for our family and I want to take care of us. And here's what I do. Cause I've had to work like 60, 70 hour weeks for years. And, and that's building a business. I say every Friday in my household, every Friday is no work Friday. And, and they know that. That is, they are my priority. And I tell them that explicitly. You are my priority. I work to take care of you. I work to take care of our family. And I love doing it. Don't feel guilty about that ever. I love doing it. But on Fridays, I will show you you're my priority because I just do nothing but spend all day with you guys Friday. Nothing else. I'm not allowed to work. If I do, you kids can yell at me for trying to work on that day. And that's it. And that's we get every minute of the day that we can during the week, which sometimes is 15 minutes a day. But on Fridays, it's just like they wake me up at dawn or before <laughs> dawn at 5 a.m. And they drag me through the day until 9 o'clock at night when they're all passed out. And that's like it's just like 18, 16, 18 continuous hours of just giving and soaking in love mm. so that they know it's there. And you make it explicit. And as they grow up, you then you then check in with them and say, hey, do you ever feel like you aren't loved? Do you ever feel like I'm not I'm not listening to you? Do you ever feel like you build a how do I want to say this? It is not about being perfect. No parents are ever going to be perfect. Even if both of you stay home and you're millionaires and you just take care of your kid day and night, hugging him 24 hours a day, you're still going to make mistakes. And so it's not that you have to be perfect. There are greater risks than one of the more difficulties there are. Um, but it's not about being a perfect parent. You're going to mess up. It's about building a self-correcting family system where your children can come to you and ask you questions, where you can ask them questions, where you can reassure them, where you provide context, where they get used to you answering questions, where they get used to knowing they can come to you and solve problems together with you. 
if you build it in where your kids know you can solve problems together as a family and work on things together instead of acting upon each other, you will build a self-correcting system. Mm. Even if you have to work three jobs, even if they hardly see you most of the week and you, you barely get one day a week with your kids, you can build a self-correcting system and be resilient and they can take that forward for their kids and build healthier families going forward. Love you that. can do this. It's not a, it's, you're not doomed and it's not hopeless and it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be a self-correcting system. Love that. And what I'm getting from you is uh, transparency, communication, and honesty. Um, yes. Being able to communicate this as many times as you have to, to let them know exactly what's going on and yes. uh, not trying to hide it under the veil of like, uh, just daddy or trying to make them feel guilty. Oh, daddy has to like take care of you guys. And just like, you know, come on. Yeah. I put exactly. food on the table and whatnot. Exactly. So, <laughs> you exactly. can tell I heard that one and before. Uh, I, uh, I'm with you. It, yeah. It's also not waiting for your kids to come to you and ask questions because yeah. when they get fearful, they won't. Mm. If a broken system won't, they won't, don't feel comfortable asking you. That's part of broken attachment. And they're like, my kids have never asked me. Well, yeah, that's a problem. Go to them on purpose and start volunteering information on purpose and volunteer the context on purpose because otherwise, if you don't, their brain will start thinking of the worst possible context. Yeah. So we were having this conversation right before, and some of the people that are listening to this are very high achievers, hard drivers. Uh, they will do anything it takes to achieve a goal. And also that means spending uh, extraordinarily long hours at uh, what they do in terms of like their work. And we were talking about, uh, you said one thing, and I was telling you about how I set a boundary. I have my work from 8 to 4 p.m., and that is the time I'm working. After that, I'm with my family. Uh, like yourself, I, I don't take all Fridays off. I actually take the morning to like create stuff, and then I go mm -hmm. spend time with my family and mm -hmm. the weekends as well. And I create these constraints because that family unit means more to me than the things that I'm creating. A lot of people would be like, okay, well, you know, my purpose is the number one thing. It, like for me, contribution is, is big, but for me, it's actually family. Cause if I didn't have my family, there would be no point almost like there, there would actually lack purpose to do all these big things that I want to do. So yeah. I, that's why I create these constraints. And you actually said something, which was to say that it's easier to facilitate things that support the things that matter, but we overvalue these things over the course of time. So can you yeah. can you talk into that a little bit and uh, and give us kind of like a, a headway in terms of like what we could do as like yeah. these high achievers to to uh, both have what we want in terms of our contribution and also having an incredible family unit. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I coach um, executives and CEOs, and business owners, millionaires. Um, I coach them all the time in their 50s, and their 60s, and their 70s, and they have had broken attachment their whole life, so they have not formed loving, bonding relationships. Sometimes their kids won't speak to them. Sometimes they, they've had four divorces. Um, and they reach, they reach this point where they're thinking about retiring, and they say, what? I have all this money. What else do I have? What have I done? What have I built? What matters? And, and how am I going to spend my time? If I retire, I'm just going to lay down and die because there's nothing more to me than this business. And what I tell them is this, is you, and I tell young people this too, you need to be focused from day one on the legacy you're trying to leave the day after you die. Mm. The day after you die, what happens? Who's left? 
The day after you die, your money gets divvied up from heirs or whoever you're going to leave it to, and they start frittering that money away pretty quick, usually. And the money is gone, and they don't think about you every time they pull out their card to spend money later on. You know, they, even if they save it, they're not sitting there going, "Oh, thanks, Dad, that was great." <laughs> Financial inheritance can be cool, but it goes away. Mm. And the stuff that you have saved, your house, it's probably all going to be thrown in the garbage, except for a few sentimental heirlooms that people will put away in their in their attic. And then when they die, their kids will throw those away because they won't know what those are. So your money. Your stuff is going to probably go away. A company you build is going to change hands. It may go bankrupt. People will sell it off. There'll be five owners. Whatever you're going to build and make and pass on probably is going to end up being destroyed in some way or frittered away. So it doesn't even matter. What matters is the human impact that you leave, the lives that you fundamentally transform. So the most extreme example, of course, is like you you adopt an orphan, you raise them and help them become a heart surgeon, and they go out and they perform heart surgery on all these other orphans in Africa and all these people are alive. That's the extreme legacy version that you helped change a life, which then helped change another life. But I've got four kids. If they each have four kids, and then they each have that's that's fourteen, that's sixteen grandkids, and they each have four kids, and that's like what sixty four great grandkids, and and then they each have four kids, it turns into you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds within one hundred and twenty years. I'm talking about hundreds, you know, three, four, five hundred biological descendants within one hundred and twenty years. When I'm dead, I'm going to have hundreds of biological descendants who are out there in the world making changes. Do I want them to be strong and healthy? Do I want them to work together? Do I want them to be scattered? Do I want them to be on drugs and miserable and depressed? Do I want them broken attachment, healthy attachment? What legacy do I want to leave? Well, I want to leave a good one where they're a united family, where they're working together. They're a village, a new village. They, they raise each other's kids. They raise businesses together. They are financially free. They can do what they want with their lives. They can live to their conscience. They can travel. They can whatever they need to do. They can take care of business and go back to the way humans are supposed to live instead of the way we're all living. Well, to get there, I got to work pretty hard. I got to make money, and they're going to have to have money for that kind of a system. But they also have to have love and reassurance mm. and healthy attachment. They have to have principles. They have to have values. They have to know that they are loved. They need to know what a healthy family system looks like. They need to know what a father should look like. They need to know how a father treats his wife. They need to know how a father raises little kids and loves them. They need to know what love is or they're going to fritter everything away and kill themselves. I don't want my grandkids overdosing on drugs because they're so depressed. I want my grandkids thriving because they are so fulfilled in their family system that they can't even imagine why a person would want to use drugs. That's the family system I got to build. So if I sit here and invest 80 hours a week into my business and do nothing but generate money and I leave $100 million to my kids – and they're all broken and depressed, then the legacy I have left is garbage. Mm -hmm. It is a consuming legacy. It's going to kill them. And, and I'm going to, at the end of my life, at 80 years old, I'm going to watch my family ripping itself apart and be miserably depressed. And I'm going to say, why did I spend my whole life making money? It doesn't even matter. And now I'm so unhappy. All I can do is watch my family kill themselves. And that's where a lot of executives and CEOs and business owners are when they come to me and say, Adam, my family is broken. I have all this money. I would trade anything anything to work with people and, and, and fix this. And, and what can I do? So I coach with them and I teach them and they rebuild their relationships with their kids. And then they actually build something that matters. So if you're a business owner listening to this or an executive CEO, whatever you are, even if you're just working at McDonald's right now, have your end goal in mind, have your legacy in mind, have a human impact you want to leave on the world. 
have that. If that's three people that you mentor through your life, but then they go mentor three people and they go mentor three people. If you want to raise a nonprofit that takes care of people, if you want to raise a business and use the profits from that to do something else, if you want to generate jobs, you want to help families, you want to build a big family of your own, you want to build an empire, whatever it is, have that in mind and work enough to fuel that. But don't work so much that you destroy your legacy in the process. And uh, tend to your own freaking garden, right? It's like when you say yes. mentoring, it's like it's so easy to mentor someone else and to take someone that's already kind of like, you know, fit. But, you know, you have your own garden to tend and you have your own family. And it may seem hard for a lot of for some people to to kind of reclaim what's broken. But uh, that is where you're going to get the most fulfillment in life. And when I think about Actually, when you were talking about all that stuff, I'm like, shit, I got to have more kids right now. Like, I got <laughs> to get my wife right now. We got to get it going on. Um, but but yeah, it's like tend to your own garden and fix your legacy, like your immediate legacy, which is going to be your family. And then once that is fixed, then, you know, all the other accolades that come, they're just a bonus. You've 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 actually focused on what matters most. So, yes, um, Adam. I'm so uh, I'm so stoked that you actually reached out and, uh, and that we were able to do this. And this has been eye opening for me. I hope for the people that are listening to this, I hope it's been eye opening for them. And if people wanted to either do coaching with you or they wanted to consume some of the stuff that you're putting out, uh, where can mm-hmm. they reach you? Absolute best place on earth right now is a new website I just launched two days ago, AdamLaneSmith.com. It's, uh, I'm working with some guys who just have made it beautiful. Adam Lane Smith, L-A-N-E. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the best place to find me. I'm also on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. Of all places, the newest generation, I've got almost 200,000 followers on TikTok now, learning about attachment. And, nice. can, and it is resonating hard with the younger crowd because they want it and they need it. And those mm-hmm. are the people that need it most right now. So on TikTok, <sighs> I am at attachment bro. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank God you're on TikTok. Thank God. Out, out of all the things that you can watch on TikTok, please go to Adam's uh, TikTok. Uh, he doesn't, I'm pretty sure he doesn't dance and do, does the pointing thing or, you know, no, I never yeah. will. I never, yeah. I never will. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I mean, I'm not even on TikTok. I don't even go on there. I'm probably just not, I'm, I'm just going to stay off of it right now, but I'm so I appreciative of the fact that you're on there because TikTok needs you for sure. Makes the world sense. needs you, my friend. The world needs you. <laughs> I, yeah. I hear you. I hear yeah. you, my friend. The world needs us both yes. and, and our kids. Yeah, 100%. All right. Uh, okay, so we're going to have those links in the show notes. And uh, and yeah, um, I would highly recommend that, uh, you know, if you are dealing with something like this, that you talk to an expert, that you get coached by an expert. I feel that coaching is actually the quickest, most effective path from where you are to where you want to be. I, I will say that a million times over. And uh, if this is something that you want to fix in your life, go to Adam's website, sign up for some coaching. If not, you know, consume his content on Instagram, Twitter, on TikTok, on on his website. If you do send a newsletter and, uh, and Adam, just want to say thanks again for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you. Thanks for having me here. This was a blast. Yeah. 
you again for listening to the dango show we have some amazing episodes coming your way so make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already if you're already subscribed and today's episode hit home for you please share this episode with someone that you know who'd benefit from listening take care and see you every week on your favorite podcast again 